Welcome to Pushing the Envelope. This podcast is where we talk about high-performance construction, building science, the building envelope, and all kinds of ways to make buildings just work better. I'm really excited about today's episode. We have with us three very smart people from the GAF Building and Roofing Science team. Joining me today is Jennifer Keegan, the Director of Building and Roofing Science at GAF, James Kirby and Benjamin Meyer, also on the GAF Building and Roofing Science team. And we have a really good discussion about roof wind design, talk about all kinds of resources that are available, the whole process, starting with building code, going through other referenced standards. Uh, and I know, you know, building codes and standards may not sound that exciting, but we try to bring it down to a pretty fundamental level, um, make it useful to people of all different experience levels. And I think it will be a really good refresher for some uh, brand new information for some others and uh, you know, I hope you really enjoy it. Please uh, listen in, let me know what you think. Um, there's links in the show notes uh, on the website copelandbec.com slash podcast. You can find links to most of the references and resources that we talk about. So with that, here we go with Jennifer, James and Ben from GAF on Roof Wind Design. Thanks everybody for coming on to the podcast. I'm super excited for this one. Uh, I, it's a it's a topic that I like in general. I like talking about, it, and I think that it's going to be really interesting uh, and hopefully interesting and educational for folks. And I'm just really uh, excited that you all you know uh, were willing and able to come on and talk to me for an hour. Or so so thank you very much. Number one. Um, uh, so let's see. Let's first uh, we have Jennifer Keegan. Uh, all of you guys are from GAF, just to uh, make that uh, <laughs> clear. Um, and Jennifer Keegan, hello. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks, Matt, for having us here. This is uh, pretty exciting for us. Thanks. Absolutely. Uh, also, Jim Kirby. Hi, Matt. Again, yeah. Thanks for having us here. This is this is fun, and uh, yeah, it is one of our favorite topics, quite honestly. So we're excited. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah, I've seen you guys, uh, your active publishers on the topic, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about. Absolutely. And then, uh, oh, there goes the mic. <laughs> also, we've got Ben Meyer joining us as well. So hi, Ben. Hi, Matt. It's great to, great to be here. And you got, you got most of the team. So this is a fun conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, so now that we've got everybody's voices, uh, hopefully that we can follow the conversation um, it, even in an audio format. So um, great. So I think, you know, to start, you know, basically we're going to talk about uh, roof design and uh, especially how wind design plays into that. Um, but to kind of kick that off, instead of diving directly into codes and, and things like that and everyone's favorite uh, technical topics, um, I'm wondering if any one of you guys has like an example or a story that might help illustrate um, why this is important. You know, why why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you publishing all these blog posts and articles? Um, you know, why why is this an issue at all? You know, we have a couple of videos that we like to show when we're live. Uh, of of roofs as they are literally flying off buildings and landing in the parking lots during some some wind events and that right there is one of the biggest reasons we talk about this is how to manage risk and how do we keep that roof on the building performing the way it's intended that layered with all the changes to uh, some of the codes and standards out in the industry Right, you know, and I would I would add to that, uh, and again, just for a little clarity on who's speaking, this is Jim again to help get your voice set or get your ears set up to voices. Thanks, Jim. 
keeping a roof on a building is just fundamentally important to keeping the assets inside of that building functioning and happy, quite honestly, from whether it's stuff, a museum piece, a server farm, you know, or just occupants who don't want to be dislocated or, you know, dislodged from a, from a roofing issue. So um, a little bit of prevention at the beginning when a roof is being installed goes a long way to keep that roof on a building over the life. So I think this is a, it's interesting point um, that Jim and Jennifer, you both bring up. Like I say in jest sometimes when I'm talking to people that, you know, we don't want to find this roof in the parking lot tomorrow. Um, but like that literally happens like that, you know, roofs actually, the membrane, the roof actually blows off the building. And I think people don't under, don't even think of that as a risk. Right. So there is an entire group in the roofing industry called Rakawi, the roofing industry committee on weather events. It used to be wind events, but now it's weather events. And they run around after storms <laughs> and figure out what went wrong and help determine, you know, how to do things better in the future. It's, it's part of the reason or much of the reasons why we have the testing that we have for wind uplift and certainly all of the issues that we have around edge metal and gutters. And I know we'll dive into that. I don't want to get too deep right, right now, but we've learned all this through seeing roof failures. So yeah, it's, it's a big deal in the roofing industry. So maybe this is a, a good time to, to make this distinction or, or what uh, I think there is a distinction in practice and there, there maybe shouldn't be. Um, but so why, so we've gotten, you know, as a industry of uh, designers and builders at making sure that buildings generally don't blow over, right? Like we don't have buildings like blowing over in the winds, but yet we still have parts of buildings in particular roof uh, blowing off. So, you know, it, does anyone, anyone of you have a, an explanation or a suggestion as to like, why, why does that happen? Like, why are we not applying that same design diligence to that part of it versus, you know, the actual main force uh, uh, resisting system, the actual structure of the building? Uh, I think there's, there's kind of a, maybe a disconnect between, you know, design practice and installation practices in, in the roofing industry as, as a whole. And, yeah. you know, what's required by code isn't always what, what is where the conversation starts when it comes to roofing. Um, and, and that can be a challenge and, and that disconnect, you know, between, hey, I really want a 20 year roof versus I need to meet the the, uh, the, the building code, may, maybe small or maybe very large. And it, it doesn't really show up until you run into performance issues. And yeah, so the way, the way we talk about roofs and the way we specify roofs um, and in the industry is kind of, I think, creating that gap. Yeah, and you know, oh, go ahead, Jim. I, I just say there, there there's, this is a little bit more once a, a roof is installed, but there's a little bit of out of sight, out of mind. Yep. Things mostly work. So yep. why put a lot of effort into it? Um, you know, and quite honestly, you know, the, the main structure of building is there to make sure the building doesn't fall down. And for some reason that people get that, but um, you know, if a roof comes off, which doesn't fortunately happen very often, um, it's, it's just not top of mind. So yeah. we're trying to change that discussion for sure. Well, and Jim, there's also the, the thought behind, if I'm gonna go through the cost cutting efforts in a project, sometimes considered value engineering, um, where, where, is, where do we wanna cut cost on that project? The marble in the lobby or the roof <laughs> that nobody's accessing? Yeah. So we tend to see our, our 
roof, her square foot costs get shrunk and shrunk. And, and that, that consideration, that investment, um, we, we see kind of chipped away at oftentimes on the roof. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and I think in my experience too, I, I think a lot of folks are, um, for whatever reason, uh, you know, not aware that such a thing as uh, like a structural design for the roof even exists. You know, they, they'll say, you know, I want a roof and somebody will say, well, I can give you a roof, I can install a roof. And they say, great, you know, I want the black one and the roof shows up, right? And, <laughs> um, but you wouldn't necessarily, you know, like if you're, uh, if you're building, you know, the structure. And again, you know, obviously the, the, consequences of failure are different. And, you know, there's certainly much more risk of a, from a, a structural failure to life safety and things like that. But the, you know, conceptually from an engineering standpoint, um, you know, there's, there's, I think a perception a lot of times that uh, you don't need to go through, or you don't, you know, there, there isn't even that same exercise of determining uh, a load and then finding something that can resist that load. Um, you know, cause people I'll ask, uh, I'll come into a project maybe later on and, and, you know, ask, start asking questions about what the design loads are, or, you know, are, is there an assembly letter or something like that from the manufacturer to describe, and we'll talk maybe about all this stuff more later, but people seem almost, uh, surprised that there is such a thing as, you know, a load. They'll tell me, well, the, you know, it's guaranteed for 20 years and, uh, right. it's, you know, it's made for 60 mile an hour winds or right. something like that. Right. Um, and they, they are completely ignorant of the idea that there's, uh, loads, you know, uh, structural loads that are applied as well. Yeah. Um, that's a really good example of kind of that disconnect in the process. Cause I very, you know, with very, I'd say educated customers, we, we walk them through that process to, Hey, turn to your code sheet. There are some loads on that sheet. Now let's relate those yeah. to the roof loads. And that, that, yeah. That you know, closing the loop process doesn't always happen, even yeah. even with well-intended and well-informed professionals. And so that's that's a big part of you know why we write all these papers and do the presentations. Yeah, and, and I think there's also been a disconnect between what's required by code and what we can do as designers, right? So code is is that baseline minimum to play, right? So we need these minimum entry-level requirements, but we can design a roof that that can be um, a bit more enhanced than that right and mm -hmm. so walking the designers that we walk through through those options and those design considerations so that way they can consider does this building does this owner this project warrant something that's a little bit more resilient something that's going to yeah be more than just what the code minimum is. So maybe if we consider higher than code wind speeds, like that is something we could consider as we see all these storms that surprise everybody and kind of are escalating as, as the years come by. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of my favorite sayings is that the, uh, the code like a building that meets code is the worst building you can legally build. Right. Yeah, so. <laughs> keep, keep so you in jail, yeah. right. Yeah. So, to, so to, to build on what Jennifer's saying and, and kind of bring it back to your question, Matt, about, you know, there are real loads. I mean, you know, one of the things that, you know, and Ben has done parts of our presentations extremely well show, telling us, you know, what not to do on specifications, meet a 90 mile an hour wind or just say yeah. FM 90. Yeah. Um, so we go through and we explain a lot of what those differences are and what really should be happening. But to your point, we design loads on the structure, steel, concrete, wood. We designed loads on our facades. We designed loads on our roof systems in pounds per square foot. Right. And so everything that we do on the load side ends up in a PSF uh, load, 
pound per square foot load acting on that roof, obviously sucking, trying to suck the roof off. Yeah. Uh, and then manufacturers do all of these great tests to show that this roof system has this capacity. And of course the capacity needs to be much stronger than those pounds per square foot loads that we determine that hopefully the architect and the, his, you know, his or her structural engineer is helping with. So, absolutely. Uh, so it, yeah, it, let's, let's dive into that a little bit deeper and, and talk about uh, where we start with the code and then how we go from there. And just, I, I meant to say this at the beginning, uh, you know, obviously we all have particular expertise in this topic, but you know, for anybody listening, uh, you know, we certainly advise uh, project specific advice and guidance on any particular topic, right? Like we're talking Clearly. generally and, and, you know, about, uh, you know, industry topics and, and reference material and thing like that, but anything uh, project specific, please get appropriate guidance from your, from your local expert. <laughs> um, but so let's talk about, okay, so we start with the building code. That's kind of where we begin. Um, and then that guides us from there. So, uh, you know, how do we know, uh, how do we know where do we even begin with the building code? Where do we like, which, you know, uh, what code, what code do we look at? Where do we look in the code? Uh, right. And then where do we go from there? So if we, if we go and look at the international building code, uh, chapter 15 specifically speaks to the requirements for, for roofing. And so uh, section 1504 um, specifically addresses wind resistance. And there's a prescriptive list of <clears throat> requirements that as designers, we are required by code to legally provide. Um, and this actually now in the 2021 version, um, um, sorry, if we jump to, jump to chapter 16, sorry, uh, chapter 1603. So chapter 15 um, deals with uh, the allowable stress design versus ultimate strength design. So how we're calculating those loads. But in chapter 16, um, chapter uh, section 1603, has all the wind design uh, requirements. Right. And so in there specifically, uh, we are required to not only provide um, the basic wind speed, um, we are required to provide um, the uh, wind design pressures, uh, the risk category, the exposure, um, all of our um, internal uh, uplift coefficients, um, and then um, all the pressures for each zone. And now we're also, in, with the 2021 code, required to provide um, a zone layout. So that way there's very clear communication from the designer to the contractor, which areas on the roof are required to have each certain um, capacity uh, requirements there. And Jennifer, you just mentioned the 2021 building code. These, these basic uh, requirements have been in the code since 2018, 2015, 2012. So really what we just told you is designers and structural engineers need to do what's legally required of them and put this information on the drawings. And this is a case where, you know, just, you know, we give the code a hard time being as the worst building you're allowed to build. Uh, but th this is a case where the, you know, the worst documentation you're allowed to document isn't always even being complied with. Um, so exactly. so be, being very mindful of that. And that's kind of, Step one for us is kind of walking folks through that process of, hey, these loads exist, they need to exist on your drawings, and this is how you relate them back to the roof. If they're not there, then let's go back a step, you know, and, and that's, that's really part of the challenge. Yeah, so just to be really clear, like whose responsibility is it to determine the uplift load on the roof and, and where does somebody find that information uh, once the project's getting started? 
Right. So, I mean, Jennifer, Jennifer laid it out. Chapter 15 is the roofing chapter. It takes you to chapter 16 to do the structural loads within there. It says specifically that the essentially it, I may botch this one a little bit, but the <laughs> architect of record, however, the wording yeah. is and designer uh, of record design. Thank you. The designer of record needs to provide that list of information that are the assumptions made, the selections that are possible to end up with those design wind pressures and yeah. those PSFs. So it's yeah. laid out very strictly or very, very specifically in the code. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, I just want to be really clear on that, that it's, you know, uh, the manufacturer and the installer all have their responsibilities here too, but it's really incumbent on the designer to come up with that first step of these are the design loads and then we got to find a system that works with that. But without that first bit of information, we can't go on to the next steps. Right. right. So one thing that's very distinct and uh, clear in the also in chapter 15 is that a roof assembly built up, modified, single ply, whatever it might be, and all of its components down at the deck needs to be tested for capacity. Yep. And that's absolutely the responsibility of the manufacturer then. Right. And that's where we get into the million approval listings in RoofNav, <laughs> the 4,000 yeah. approval listings in DORA, the you know Directory of Roof Assemblies. Yeah. So th let's talk about that for a second. So so we've got our loads and we can, I think we want to circle back to some of the pieces that go into calculating those loads or coming up with the loads. But for now, okay, let's assume we've got our loads. We know what the uplift pressure is. How do we pick a system that is going to resist those uplift loads? So uh, really, we, we get into then what we call approval listings. So approval listings are garnered, if you will, by doing either a wind uplift test or a series of tests because it, the differentiation is there. In the code, that there, there's, there's three tests that are specifically listed to determine wind uplift capacity, FM 4474, UL 580 and UL 1897. Those are all individual tests for wind uplift. The result of those is a capacity that is in 15 pound increments. The least yep. we can come up with is like a 60 PSF capacity roof system. The next step is 75, 90, 105, go up by 15 until you hit 990 pounds per square foot. And you know, without going too deep into the test, once you reach the 60 and held it for the minute, however long it needs to be held, and then as you're bringing your system up to the next level, you know, in, in that intermediate area is usually when you're, when that roof system will fail. So whatever the last result is, you know, within those steps, that 60, 75, 90 progressive stepping uh, is the rating for that system. Um, and you know, to dive into what FM RoofNav is and Dora is, is really the next step to go find yeah. those particular listings that manufacturers yeah. have generated. Yeah, and, and just, oh, go ahead, Jennifer. Sorry, and this is where the manufacturer really comes in as a partner, right? So this is where designers will reach out to us. So they've consulted with their structural engineer, most of them, and it, the people that we've spoken with, are working with a structural engineer to help calculate their design wind pressures. They put all that information on their drawings. They send their drawings over to us as the manufacturer and say, 
this is the roof system I'm looking for, help me find that system selection. And so we'll, we'll look at their drawings. And, and this is where having that, we see having that information clearly laid out on the drawings, which is in that, you know, the requirements in chapter 16 in the IBC, and helps us be able to make sure that we know whether they've, um, you know, they have loads for each of the different zones on the roof. They've factored or unfactored these loads. So that way we can make sure they're meeting with the systems and then help with that system selection. Um, you, you know, we definitely have the, the listings that Jim was talking about using DORA, the Director of Roof Assemblies, um, UL has a system, FM, um, and, and kind of narrow you down. But we often get calls from contractors and designers trying to help um, with that piece. And so we can help with that piece as long as they're providing us with, with the design wind pressures in that yeah. PSF, not that miles per hour saying, well, we need a 90 mile per hour system. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And just quickly on the testing, you know, uh, I don't know how many folks outside of, uh, you know, people in this roofing industry specifically understand, like, um, you know, when, when we have capacities for various structural systems around a building, there's any number of ways that, you know, as an industry over the years, we've come up with those capacities. Um, but with roofing, it's through this, it's through testing of the actual assembly, right? Like, can you uh, just take a second and describe, you know, if you were to walk into one of these tests, uh, to one of these tests underway, like what would you see? So, um, go ahead, go ahead Jennifer. Go ahead, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, uh, I I did used to work for uh, Intertech, and they do a lot of product testing. So I've I've seen um, these these tests done, and so you they'll have a large chamber. Um, the the roof system will be um, built up on that chamber, and they're literally applying those loads. And so oftentimes you'll you'll see um, that roof system um, and they, they, you'll, you'll see oftentimes like if it's a single ply, you'll see it billowing uh, mechanically attached there and, and they'll pull on that roof system, um, that pressurized system in, until it reaches failure. So like Jim said, they're doing it in increments of 15 PSF and you're, you're watching um, that, that system go until we will see an actual failure. Yeah. So they literally like build the actual roof system at a large, relatively large scale, and then pull air pressure on it like it would on the roof. Absolutely. Yeah. Co correct. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, for, don't don't go to the bank on these specifics exactly. But <laughs> I think the UL five eighty test is ten by ten. Yeah. Uh, the FM forty four seventy four, I believe, is twelve by twenty four. Yeah, I think you're um, right. So yeah, so you're building full scale representation of the roof that you want to test applying that negative pressure to the top until it fails. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. So, all right. So now we've got, uh, we've got our loads and, uh, and we're working through coming up with a system that can meet those loads. Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about some, like the, you know, people are really familiar with these FM numbers and, uh, you know, FM, whatever, 90, 120, whatever, whatever the number is FM something and, and how that, uh, you know, relates to, the actual design. And uh, I should say people are probably not familiar with how that relates to the actual design. <laughs> yeah. So maybe let's talk a little bit about that and, and recognizing that there are other, um, there are other listing uh, agencies or other list, other mechanisms for quantifying the resistance, but this is a common one. Um, and maybe we can talk also about at the same time, like how FM as an organization fits into this whole picture as well versus how, you know, some others might. 
So I'll, I think it's a great question. And I'll start this one kind of pulling from our list of what not to do, because right? it's always helpful, especially when we talk about FM. Because um, one of the, the things that we see done is shorthand, you know, people, you know, people are strapped and, and budgets are tight, especially on the design side. So wouldn't it be just nice to just add, you know, make must meet FM 190 to my spec and not, not do any other calculations. Um, and we, this is something that we see all the time. And, and a lot of times there's not even an understanding of what that means. Um, so there's a few risks you run there. Like one, are you overpaying because you're asking for an FM specification, you know, for the roof system or, or two is 90 PSF, which is not 90 miles per hour sufficient for your actual design. And, and a lot of times that back check never happens. So um, as, as handy as it is to just specify one thing and move on, this is kind of that, that cautionary tale of like, be, be careful if this is in your spec, you know, do that, do the homework. So that, that's, I'll, I'll start with what not to do there, but I'll give it yeah. to these folks to kind of work through what you should be doing, you know, with, with these rated systems. Right, I think uh, good, very, very good explanation that I think a, a distinction that designers need to understand is that FM is first a insurance company. And so they have very strict procedures and processes for building their buildings, re-roofing their buildings in order to be FM insured. What the distinction is often, or the distinction that's often not made is that the FM 4474 test is that. It is simply a test that can be run by many different uh, testing labs. And so you can get a rated roof that has been tested to 4474 and use that. And it has really no bearing at all on whether or not that building is FM insured or not. Yes. So it, it, it's, it's a little it's a bit hard to explain, but once that, once that sort of clicks in your brain, then I think a lot of this really becomes clearer. So FM yeah, is like sort of its own animal. <laughs> exactly. Like, like you can use the information on its own, but you don't necessarily, uh, it's just another piece of information um, to go into the overall puzzle. Right. Right. So, so Matt, you can certainly use FM to run your, your wind uplift calculations. And um, they, they've got like a you know, system to help with that. Um, and you can use your system selection there. But what, what designers need to understand is that when you run the same project through um, RoofNav, which is FM's calculator, and you run it through RoofWind Designer, which is another publicly available um, calculator, which is run through NRCA, you're gonna get two really different answers. And the FM calculations are ultimately gonna be more conservative. And there's, it, it's just the way that they've built their calculations and the assumptions that go into an NFM project, um, starting from their, the wind maps that they use. Um, and, and the inherent and important factor that is just built into those projects. So that's something, it's, it's not just as simple as, well, I can use FM to run my calculations even if it's not an FM project. You absolutely can. It's gonna be a more conservative design, which is always a good thing, but yeah. understand if that makes sense for this specific project. Yeah, and so just a couple of points on that that I, I just wanna clarify too that, you know, um, FM, helps or can help with both sides of this equation, right? They have tools to help with the, uh, the design load calculations, and they also have tools to help uh, with 
identifying systems that meet those loads. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about FM, you know, you could be talking about either one side or both sides of that equation. Um, and then, um, uh, well, let's, uh, I did want to hit quickly on like the, the safety factor issue and like how, you know, what that number means in terms of actual uplift resistance um, when specifically with FM, because um, I think people are often confused between wind speed, uplift resistance, and then with the safety factor thrown into it, it, a lot of people just get lost in that. So um, maybe you can speak quickly to like, uh, you know, what is an uh, FM 190, for example, or, you know, whatever number it is, what does that mean in terms of real world performance? So the, the 90 itself at the end, so an FM 1-90, first of all, the one means it's fire classified as a class one fire resistance rated roof system. FM does not do anything over wood decks, steel and concrete, anything that's non-combustible. So uh, the one actually is the fire classification. The 90 is the, the uplift rating for that roof system. So pulling from what we just said, that system, that roof system was tested to determine its wind uplift resistance using FM 4474 and the last classification that roof system held fast at was 90 pounds per square foot. And so if it failed at 92 or 94 or whatever the number, it didn't get to 105. So it gets that 90 PSF uplift rating failure, failure mode or failure load uh, actual failure load was it was at least 90 pounds per square foot. And, and to kind of talk about safety factor, I think, you know, the calculations, if you run into the FM roof nav calculator, it's going to, you have all the inputs, there's some assumptions, uh, but that calculator is not built on the minimum current uh, requirement in ASC 7. So it's going to take their calculations, their inputs and double them, you know, to get to what, what's this, the, the safety rated capacity. So that's going to be at least a safety factor of two. Uh, but if you compare that to what's minimum required by code, the safety factor could be far in excess of two because it's a, a different calculation method altogether. Right, right. Cool. So let's talk then about um, how maybe some of the different methodologies or the, you know, what goes into calculating that load. We'll circle back a little bit to the, to the load side part of the discussion. Um, you know, how, how would you, how do you go about getting that number and what are some of the different ways one could do that? Well, I think there's three paths to start with. Um, so it's, you can either do um, in-house calculations, uh, leveraging a structural engineer. Uh, so you can, and those can be hand calculations. Um, you can use um, the, some, some tools that are available like NRCA's Roof Wind Designer, um, and that's, that helps you. There's, there's certain limitations with that software. So if you have any kind of atypical building, if it's over a certain height, then you're precluded from using that. Um, if it's not, a, if you don't consider it fully enclosed, then you can't use that software um, and you'd have to defer back to your structural engineer. Um, or you can use FM's roof nav uh, to run your calculations. So we kind of look at these three paths that are available to get you started. Yeah, that's helpful. And what are these? Um, so the, you have these calculators. Um, you maybe can speak a little bit to how uh, you know what are those based on? You know, there's some there's some uh, sort of 
you know, science behind that as well. And, and you know, to the extent that we know some of it is maybe proprietary, but to, to how do, what are those based on and what, are, what assumptions are you implicitly making by using one or, one or more of those? So they're all built off of uh, a version of ASC7 um, structure, structural design. Um, and that, that's part of the challenge. Um, so looking at like roof nav starts with an 05 version and then they kind of add on to that in complexity to get you to a calculation that's at least equivalent to the current version of ASC7, which is 16. Uh, so there, there's kind of some meandering pathway to get you there um, yeah. through various maps and, and kind of default risk factors. Um, so looking at some of the other tools, so hand calculations, you're going to look right at the standard, right at ASC7, and draw a straight line from what's in the standard to what's required for the building. Um, yeah. the, the other tools, um, like, like Jennifer mentioned, Roof Wind Designer, also follows along uh, ASC7, but it looks just at, at, at a prescriptive pathway. So it's, yeah. it's a narrower pathway, um, and that's where some of the limitations come in. But it, it, it is you know, a, a good design tool even if you don't use that as your ultimate compliance. Right, so, so all, all good commentary. So what goes into some of this a little bit more specifically in, you know, the location of the building is really critical. Mm -hmm. Where in the United States this building sits and what its local wind speed is. So we do start with wind speed when we're determining the loads acting on the building. Then we bring in you know, obviously the building's length, width, and height and that affects roof layout and certain uh, other uh, inputs into the equation. Um, we think about exposure category. Is this right next to a large body of water? Is this out in the middle of the prairie? Is this in a suburban urban area? Um, and, and those carry different, those different exposure categories based on what you select will bring you to a different end result for your design wind pressures. Uh, we also bring in, you know, the use and occupancy of the building and, and what's, what's really interesting. And I, I thought Jennifer was going to dive into this a little bit earlier, but um, uh, she, she left me a nice softball. 7-16, <laughs> there are actually four maps, four maps in the United States. So if I go to Des Moines, Iowa, and I pick the risk category one, Des Moines, Iowa wind speed, I get one number. As I move to risk category two, risk category three, and risk category four, that initial wind speed for Des Moines continues to go up because the importance of the building becomes greater. So the structural engineering groups have decided that these are appropriate wind speeds based on, you know, whether it's a fire station or an agricultural storage warehouse kind of a thing. Right. Um, and then sort of the last big one is what we call enclosure classification. Is the building's enclosure going to hold tight and not allow wind to enter the building excessively and then if, if wind does enter the building, we're going to internally pressurize that building and try to push the roof off from the underside as well as from the negative pressures with the wind blowing around the building and over the right. top of the building. So all of those components go into roof nav, roof wind designer, hand calcs, and 
you know, we've shown in some of our presentations the the, the myriad design results that <laughs> come out just differently when you choose a different risk category, you choose a different exposure, you do, you choose a different internal pressurization factor, um, and, and the numbers can be vastly different. So, to to me, that brings it all back to why what's in the building code for the designer is so important because knowing what's in the equation to determine the design wind pressures and, and how critical the assumptions are with, with all of those inputs leads to a vastly different output. And so the, the designer in conjunction with the owner and the phrase we like to throw around the owner's performance requirements, yeah, you know, which I suppose maybe has a little bit of uh, association with the risk factor of the building. Um, you know, we, we move down that path and it becomes super critical that the designer is influencing these decisions and not the structural engineer or the roofing contractor or the manufacturer. We don't know what the building owner wants. The architect should. That's why it's set up the way it is in the building code. And what we try to encourage that all those factors that Jim just went through, you know, if you're a designer and architect that you don't need to be an expert and know how to do the calculation yourself, but you need to understand the factors so that you can have the conversation with, with your structural engineer, maybe who's doing it, that you can make sure that your, your assumptions and their assumptions are aligned uh, and you're not going to end up with apples when you ask for oranges. I mean, that, that's, and that happens, I think, more often than we, we would anticipate. And that those assumptions align with the owner's performance requirements, right? So yes. tying it all together. Yeah, this is a really key point that there's, um, you know, significant uh, element of design judgment that goes into this. Like there's not one right answer for any given situation. And there's a lot of different factors that can play in. Uh, and that's even before you get to the point of, uh, you know, what Jennifer was talking about before of like, you know, well, maybe I want to even go beyond what the code says, you know, even just getting to the first part of like, what is the baseline? You could have several different answers for that. And then you might decide even, okay, well, I want to enhance beyond that too. So there's this huge factor of, you know, design judgment that plays into this. That is, and, and, you know, along with that, uh, if, uh, you know, if the architect or the, the actual designer isn't um, making that judgment, um, somebody is, whether they know it or not, right, along the way. Um, and so, you know, I think folks should be careful to um, make sure that everyone understands who is making the judgment. And if it's, if it's you and you didn't mean it to be you, then, you know, you want to know that, right? Like if, if all of a sudden it's falling on your shoulders and you're just picking a number uh, because it sounds good, then all of a sudden you've taken that responsibility um, of all that judgment. So I think that's an important point. And in our workshops, we, we, we play a game with designers to kind of drive this point home that depending, you know, what's the code minimum, it really depends on the answers to these questions. And the difference yeah. between code minimum from one set of answers, code minimum to another set can be 200% difference, you know, 220% difference. And those are all code minimum. It really comes down to, are you, are your assumptions aligned? Are they appropriate? And, and that, yeah. that's, that, that's a big range to kind of land that plane in. Yeah. I think maybe a, a reasonable example and you know, the, my my two colleagues who have practiced real architecture a little bit more than me could help me out with this one. But you know, you're designing the second floor of a two-floor office building. The loads that you apply to a specific room are going to be different if it's used as a single office or a library with rows and rows of bookshelf. So do you want the structural engineer to design every one of those 
beam systems underneath the second floor are identical or maybe you want to put a little bit more capacity under where you're expecting a higher load so yep. you know that's a little bit more obvious because it's a different room function but the concept is still valid that you know we, we do make these inherent or we do make these choices that really affect the outcome and ben's exactly right you know they all meet the minimum requirements of the code but are they where the building needs to be designed for the for the owner Absolutely. And that's that maybe this is a good time to um, quickly hit on uh, maybe some specifics about these design numbers. I do want to get, you know, a little bit to the construction side of things. But, um, you know, when we talk about these uplift loads, uh, you know, we actually mean, you know, for any given, say, even just one, a regular rectangular roof, just one roof, rectangular shaped, um, there's not just one load, right? Um, so maybe you can talk to just quickly about, you know, what are the different loads? Why do we have different loads for one roof? And, you know, with your analogy of the different parts of a floor, you know, different parts of the roof have different loads as well. Right. So just maybe quickly hit on that. Well, it sounds like you've got our list of what not to do. Right? <laughs> this is one of the, the key things that there's not one number for your roof. Uh, so this is perfect. Uh, so really when we, when we think about roofs, we have, you know, we either have three or four roof zones. Uh, kind of back in the day, we had an interior zone one, we had a perimeter load, and then we had corner loads. They're pretty self-explanatory about where they are, the interior of the roof, the perimeters, and the corners. Uh, and then in 2016, we added a second interior zone called one prime. Uh, but the basis behind all of those is the way wind flows over a building, a straight line wind that's interrupted by the face of a wall or the corner of a building turns that wind upward and it goes over, you know, our roof system, we get negative uplift and that negative uplift is different based on how close we are to the edge, how close we are to the corner. And, you know, most of us have, been in an airplane once or twice in our life <laughs> and you know we believe the formulas work so we can design the the airplane wing to get that proper lift it's the same effect on a, on a roof system and so the way we design our buildings take into account how that wind acts over the top and the vortices it creates and, and the uplift pressures that are different across the different locations of the roof Cool. Yeah. And it's, maybe this is a good way to segue into the construction a little bit and to talk about like, okay, so you have these different loads for the same roof. You know, I thought I was getting a roof, like one roof system. So how is it going to work for different loads in different areas? All right. So how, how does that uh, translate? So we have to first, it's a great question, Matt. Um, and oftentimes a building will have more than one roof, right? So now we're looking at multiple roof levels we have to run calculations for each of these roof levels on the building. Um, Jim talked about the zones on the roof itself, but there's also zones four and five that we need to think about. And mm -hmm. those are the, the you know, where, whether we have a parapet or we have a roof edge uh, that we need to think about. And um, this, is, this is probably the most important part of keeping that roof on the building. Uh, Jim talked about how that the airplane kind of vortex of forces kind of comes up at the corners. Um, so this is where our roof is the most vulnerable. So thinking about how the edge metal or the perimeter, uh, the, the parapets are 
holding that roof down to the structure um, becomes something we really need to think about. And in terms of code, we have what they call ES1 compliance. And that's calculated from these zone four and five pressures, which are really looking at the pressures on the wall around the right. perimeters and the corners and adding that um, to our design as well. Right. Yep. And so, so when we're talking about the, the roof itself and then the edge of the roof, um, maybe we'll start with like, what are, you know, and this is maybe basic for a lot of people, but like, how is it held down? How does it not blow off the roof? What are the different ways? Sure. So let, let's just, let's start with the, probably one of the most common installs, steel deck, insulation, whether or not there's air, bar air barrier, vapor retarder, doesn't matter immediately. It's another uh, podcast. Some yeah, some insulation, maybe a cover board and a single ply membrane on top of that. So we can uh, put fasteners through all of the insulation and adhere our membrane. We can put minimal fasteners in our insulation and keep the membrane and the insulation in place by all of the fasteners that go into the seams of the six, eight, 10, 12 foot wide single ply sheets. So that is, you know, mechanically attached system. Those fasteners that are within the seams hold the entire system down. Yeah. Uh, an adhered membrane is, is adhered to all of the insulation, which is held down by through thickness fasteners, or a membrane could be adhered to a cover board, which is adhered to all of the insulation that's mechanically attached. Uh, so various combinations of that. So I think. I think where you were going with your question before, Matt, was you know we have these three zones. From a very basic, you know, perspective, if we have an adhered membrane over insulation in the center of the roof, we might put in eight fasteners for a four by eight board. When we go to the perimeter zone two, we might put in twelve fasteners per board. Yeah, exactly. When we get to the corners, we might put in sixteen fasteners per board. So that attachment of the roof to the deck is what's really critical, you know, to, to balance out what our wind uplift loads are. And again, all of these have approval listings and testing sure. and testings and all that stuff. And we still haven't even talked about the prescriptive method, but I think we might get there <laughs> soon. Um, so, you know, from the top side, you might see an adhered membrane, but what's underneath it can vary in the number of fasteners per, per area, if you will. Yeah, so exactly. So maybe let's let's go there. So you have so how do you get where do those numbers come from, for in terms of like say number of fasteners? So so back to the basics. We design our roof system. We make all of our selections. We come up with a design wind pressure of eighty five psf in the middle of the roof. We know that we need a number larger than that of capacity for that roof system. So a manufacturer has a roof system that has a 90 PSF capacity. And that system is noted exactly how it is constructed. Yeah. And so if we use it's like that, the listing will say, right? That's like the what, listing will say exactly. All, that's what's yeah. in the listing. Thank you for yeah. those correct words. <laughs> yeah. So then if we, if we do the same process, we can do the same process for perimeters and corners as well. Or we could take that, that initial listing, approval listing for that 90 in the middle of our roof, and we can prescriptively enhance to the perimeters and the corners. 
And sort of the quick, easy way to say that is we add 50% more fasteners in the perimeters. We add 100% more fasteners in the corners. Those are generally accurate rules of thumbs. And then how we lay out the sheets and whether or not we're using full sheets with intermediate rows, or we just bring our fasteners closer together within rows. You know, we could, th those, those kinds of discussions work really well from a visual, with a visual yeah, yeah. behind it. But uh, it, it's, it's a lot of, you know, finding what the weak link is by the physical testing and then increasing the capacity based on that. And a lot of it comes down to putting more fasteners in. Right, right. And, yeah, and that makes, Oh, go ahead, Ben. Sorry, when you describe perimeters and corners, just to kind of clarify, that's the on the horizontal roof surface, you know, the, the perimeter and the corner, because you also have what Jennifer mentioned, the complexity of the roof edge, you know, stopping, you know, wh where the failures start and, you know, stopping that is is the, the very extreme edge, which is that edge metal, which has its own set of requirements. And you go through almost a, a parallel process of determining the loads and the, in those perimeters, I'm sorry, in, in that edge metal, and then finding a rated system of literal edge metal to, to resist those loads. So it, it, you repeat that process, not just for the flat part of the roof, but also for the, the termination part as well and the, and the ES1 compliance. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think uh, edge metal often gets a little, you know, left left to the to the edge, to the side. Um, and, and people, you know, a, a lot of folks don't think about it in terms of rated assemblies and rated systems that uh, that have numbers to go with it. And we use, you know, uh, shop fabricated sheet metal or something like that, that, um, you know, is much harder to quantify the resistance values. So that, that's a good point. And it, it comes out as a limitation of some of the uh, design assistance tools, you know, the FM roof nav, literally doesn't give you values for zones four and five, which is that edge mm -hmm. metal. Uh, whereas roof wind designer would give you the, the values for zone four and five. And your structural engineer doing hand calculations would give you that. So so being able to you know, use a system and get easy values to then come, ba come back and find a rated system um, is not equal depending on how you're trying to show compliance. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right, cool. Well, I want to be mindful of everybody's time. And uh, I think we've had a, a pretty good discussion. We haven't gotten uh, too much into what I what I kind of started this whole uh, discussion, uh, you know, before the podcast about in this, this transition to um, the new AICE standard and, and because it's a bit of a uh, departure, you know, in some substantial ways from the previous versions. Um, and maybe that'll maybe we can do a round two sometime and dive into that a little bit deeper. But, you know, just, um, you know, maybe quickly, and, and uh, Jim, you, you hit on it a little bit with the, the zone, the addition of the new zone. But, you know, if you want to give like a, you know, a quick summary of like, why, why is there this hubbub about this new AICE version, which comes into effect with um, uh, the most recent IBC uh, update? Yeah, so I, the most significant differences are the wind speed maps that Jim was, was noting, um, the external pressure coefficients, and then the roof zones that he also talked about. So um, the, you know, since we haven't really talked about these external pressure coefficients, um, they've, they've actually jumped up um, even the zone one, that, that field of the roof, that... Um, that coefficient jumped up from one to 1.7. So we see a 70% increase uh, you know, in that capacity. And zones two and three have also increased um, as well. And what this means is that we have these larger external pressure coefficients, um, especially in the perimeters and the corners, we have higher design wind loads and we have larger perimeter zones. And so 
in terms of how we're securing this to the roof, we end up with more fasteners. So this is really a, a compounding effect. Um, and I think talking about how all of these additional fasteners impacts thermal bridging and energy efficiency is a completely separate podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah but yeah. you know, things to think about. The whole well. series here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, uh, that's all really uh, helpful, helpful summary. Um, cool. Well, uh, anyone have any other um, particular points or, or, you know, uh, concerns, you know, that you'd like to express, right? Like if someone's listening to this, you want like somebody to know, like, oh, I would just wish everybody knew this, right? Anything you want to say to the, um, small but quickly growing audience of this podcast. <laughs> I, I think my one comment is really get what's in the building code and get why it matters because you know we've, we've said it a couple of times but you, your, your minimum code requirement can be significantly different based on these selections that go into the wind side with exposure category and pressure internal pressure coefficients and and uh, you know, building use and all of that. So um, understand that, you know, it's not just two plus two is four. It's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, uh, I won't call them assumptions, but there's, there's a lot of selections that go into determining what design wind pressures are. And it's critical to be part of that discussion. Absolutely. And building on what Jim said, um, finding a way to facilitate that conversation with the project team making sure that you and the owner are aligned so that way you and the structural engineer can be aligned in making these decisions as we go through the process. When we, when we host our workshops, we actually now have a, a worksheet that walks you through the conversations to be having with the structural engineer. So you can make sure that you guys are aligned in all of these assumptions that are coming along the, the way. Yeah, I would add kind of the part of that as well is you know taking some of the mystery out of how do we figure out what roof we need that there that there is you know a pretty straight line from there is a structural capacity requirement that you have to, to figure out your loads then you have to find a rated system and then you have to find them you know in, in the style you want and then also repeat that process for the edge metal like there's it, it's a little less nebulous and i think on, on the back yeah. end if you're clear up front and then you get bids and quotes that come in you can actually evaluate them to see if they're the same rather than trying to figure out, you know, why you got a whole mess of different results, maybe because you, you weren't clear in your specification. And, and that kind of opens you up to figuring out, trying to figure out what went wrong. I think that's a, that's a great point. I think that's a great place to end. Um, I thank you guys so much. This has been great. Uh, I've really enjoyed it and, and uh, I've learned some things as well. So um, thank you. And I hope we get to do it again soon sometime. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Well, that's it for the episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Again, all the show notes, resources, and links are at copelandbec.com slash podcast. Go there, check it out. Uh, you'll find this episode and the first two as well. Feel free to leave comments on the posts there. You can leave comments in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get this podcast. Uh, if you made it this far, thank you very much for listening. Uh, looking forward to the next episode and we'll be back in touch soon. Take care.